Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're talking with Darcy Howe, Founder and Managing Director of KC Rise Fund, which launched in 2016 as an initiative of KC Rising, which has a long-term vision for the greater Kansas City region, building capacity and bringing existing businesses to scale. In 2019, KC Rise Fund 2 was launched, bringing total committed capital to over 60 million. In this episode, we're gonna dive into Darcy's background and her family inspiration, as well as her first career in private wealth management and investment banking, which led to her passion in early stage entrepreneurs. Darcy's also gonna share with us what she believes is the secret sauce of Midwest startups. The biggest theme or so what I hope you can take away from this conversation is the importance of capital efficiency. Venture is the only place where we celebrate the dilution of the founder. The concern for any kind of founder is that when you raise too much money, your margin of error shrinks. You have to perform to perfection because in the venture world, investors are expecting at least 2x growth from the valuation of their round to the next. That means you've got to double your business probably in every 18 to 24 months. So be careful of what you give away in ownership in exchange for those investor and growth expectations. Please enjoy my conversation with Darcy Howe. Darcy, it's so great to have you here on Fast Frontiers. Welcome. Thank you, Tim. Great to be your partner today. Absolutely. So when you think of Kansas City and you think of startups, you think of Darcy Howe. I mean, I don't know if you know that, but outside Kansas City, that is that is the case. You uh, you were always, when, when I came last time, you're, you're very welcoming and I'm sure you're that way with, with all the other investors and entrepreneurs. So I really appreciate that. Uh, you were here for the Investment West, which was uh, been, I guess, I think that's been 2020. Five years that Investment West has matched um, angel investors primarily, but now it's getting a little more institutional. All of it's online today, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, I remember you and I had a good conversation then. Yeah, yeah. I used to, actually, I used to go to Kansas City quite a bit years ago, years, many, many years ago, because we did a big project with Hallmark greeting cards. Oh, yeah. Nice. Well, Hallmark is a good example of how a lot of our incumbent companies that have been very generous, both philanthropically, uh, civically, uh, and great jobs brought people from out of town to here for great work. They are on the downside, right? They're uh, reducing their workforce. So I think it's a good starting place about innovation and entrepreneurship because, uh, you know, communities and regions like ours thrive when you have green shoots of new companies because inevitably uh, companies will have certain seasons. And Hallmark is a good example of a a market leader. They created the green card market, (laughs) literally, and um, couldn't quite figure out how to do it in such a way that uh, other competitors that were smaller, more nimble, uh, could and uh, you know it's affected their business. They're still a very strong part of Kansas City and a and a wonderful, wonderful group and family that that owns and runs the company. But it's um, it's really been a tough entrepreneurial story lately. Even though it was a great one two generations ago. 
Yeah, like I said it was it was many moons ago. But the uh so first of all, just kind of going into your background, which I think is really interesting and in how you got to this early stage investing in venture capital, probably not a traditional route. And I imagine you have a lot of young folks ask you, hey, how do, how do I get to grow up and do what you do? Where did that start? Well, the times have changed when, because I used to be in the more Wall Street, personal wealth, uh, private wealth kind of uh, big, big uh, firm, Merrill Lynch, for 32 mm-hmm. years. And the, the young people coming out of school used to ask, how can I get into investment banking? And if you were really wanted to be at the top of the ladder and all, you want to be in investment banking today, so many of those uh, young people ask me, how can I get into VC? So I think there's been a shift from, used to be everybody wanted to work on the deals that were hot and those were big companies. And today the deals that are hot are, are smaller companies. So, um, you know, my background was definitely more in the private wealth side. My partners and I built the largest Merrill Lynch practice in, in this region, the Kansas City region, Barron's top 100 advisors, blah, blah. And I retired in 2015, but I had been angel investing for now almost 35 years. I just loved just kind of, you know, did everything wrong, right? Threw money at stuff I had no diligence on. I, I love the idea. Didn't even evaluate whether this was somebody who could actually pull off their big idea, all of that. And then I had some successes too. So uh, did well enough on on iVerify. I paid for our daughter's wedding, and you know, so you know, I I say to people, I learned the hard way on my own on my own money as an angel investor. But after I retired from Merrill. And in about week two, I got super bored. <laughs> it's like, what was I thinking? <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I went to one of my clients who actually incubates companies and grows them. Ron LeMay, who was the first employee of Sprint's wireless operation when Sprint was still a landline company. So a real innovator in the wireless world of uh, globally, actually. And I said, Hey, Ron, what are you guys working on? Anything interesting for me? And what he was, he didn't have any place in his business, but what he was working on for the community was something uh, in 2015 called KC Rising. And it was essentially an effort between the, the business community and the civic organizations to accelerate regional prosperity. After the 08 downturn, the Kansas City region did not bounce back nearly as well as Columbus, Ohio, as an example, Indianapolis, Nashville, Denver, you keep naming them, and we were falling behind. We came back, we were growing, but everybody else was growing at a much higher um, accelerated pace. So we had to figure this out. We're still trying to figure it out. There are probably four or 500 people in the community working on various work groups to figure that out. But so 2015, I'm like, hmm, I can connect some dots. We have innovators who are leaving this region because they couldn't find money. And and I knew rich people, right? <laughs> and I knew how to angel invest. So I went back to Ron and I said, hey, Ron, I think we ought to start a fund. Let's just connect the dots between well-to-do people who want to help our community and innovators who are trying desperately to figure out how to do something. And he didn't have time to run a fund, but he's been on my board since he really was the architect of the co-investment model that we created in the venture capital fund in order to try and attract other money from out of town. So not just Kansas City money, but money from out of town. And I will say that of the $60 million that we've raised, they have actually uh, 
78% of the money that they've raised was from out of town. So over $400 million, we haven't invested all the 60 million, but out of, uh, over $400 million has been brought to Kansas City region by institutional investors outside of town who are finally believing that maybe there's something interesting in your backyard, in my backyard, that uh, when I started, I had a guy on the West Coast say to me, I can't imagine there's anything that's that interesting enough out there <laughs> to be two days away from San Francisco. Like, oh my God, I can't be two days away from the hottest, right? You know how this works. And suddenly they're starting to bid up our prices out here on uh, uh, our entrepreneurial businesses. And, and that's a good thing, I think, overall. Yeah, well, it, and it underscores actually, you know, capital follows growth. So I'm sure some of those companies were demonstrating growth that was causing that money to flow in as well. You know, the macro trends are just, you know, only more favorable, uh, it seems. There are certain pockets that still are having a hard time. I'd say finding that fifty dollars to $200,000 check in our region is still a little tough. We're, mm -hmm. we're working on some things that way. But generally, it's kind of no excuse anymore. Like, there's capital. You just got to build something that people want. Uh, so, it, it you know, we kind of put it back to the entrepreneurs that – We'll bring the capital. You just got to bring the great ideas and the traction. Show us right. you know, how to figure that out. Well, I saw a company recently raised uh, over $8 million seed round in Kansas City that you were part of. Triple Blind? Triple Blind, yes. Triple Blind is a secure way to share data in a very secure environment where it never decodes. You never unlock what that data is, but you can still use it with, with your own outside algorithms to to bring um, insights uh, into financial services, healthcare, places where either HIPAA or frenemies would kind of like to know what your visa information is on on me, if you're different different uh, you know big money center banks, but you don't really want to share all of the data about me. Um, and so there, yeah, there are a lot of ways that Triple Blind is finding traction globally with this idea of very big companies that need to figure out how to share data. Also in big research organizations in their case. Uh, so like a Mayo Clinic who who has insights that they want to share with the rest of the world, but can't do it on, you know, because they have a, a privacy issues. So yeah, but you know, Triple Blind doesn't have a ton of revenue yet. So it's interesting to see the coastal folks came in and said, this is a very big idea. And they did not require the revenue that generally I would require to get the kind of valuation that they're getting. So I'm learning also from some of the coastal VCs that sometimes, uh, you know, not being quite as prescriptive uh, in how you evaluate a company uh, is could be valuable. Could that's, be inter profitable. that's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, so, you know, thinking again of our, a lot of our listeners and entrepreneurs who, you know, outside of Silicon Valley, who are trying to raise money and, how many times do you hear that story, right? Uh, somebody who gets turned down by all the folks locally and then somebody from out of town invests and they miss this huge opportunity. You know, you, you kind of wonder, why is that, right? Why, why does that happen? It's probably a story about as old as time, you know, in terms of uh, the home, the, the profit in his hometown, right? Is isn't honored. It's, it's an entrepreneur it can be frustrating. Well, this is, it's a serial, it's a serial entrepreneur. So that's one. Okay. Is he was believable because he had a positive exit. 
fact, okay. the company that paid for our daughter's wedding, uh, he was a part of that. And he also, the acquirer of that company was Ant Financial, which was part of Alibaba. And then mm-hmm. the founder of uh, Triple Blind was on the Alibaba team looking for innovation in the U.S. and in Israel. So much to the credit of the founder, he utilized that time at Alibaba to really gain his credibility in the in the network, and then he called upon that group. So it's it, that's how it really came about for him is uh, being a serial founder and really having a global presence with that acquirer. Wow. Yeah, so that's yeah, good. Good for him. And and it just shows you the value of the talent and the importance of the talent. And the network. Yes. And the yes, network. Yes. <laughs> so what what would you share with, you know, what's unique about your region that you could, that you think has worked particularly well that you would share with other Midwest cities? I would say it's not unique in our region, but I think it's the secret sauce of many of our Midwest cities is what we've discovered is, Kansas City region is really good at figuring out how to bring innovation to very basic businesses. So the idea of like using Triple Blind as an example, you know, who are their customers? Their customers are going to be big money center banks, um, healthcare organizations. Their customers are not some newfangled whatever. And so we're finding logistics. We are the NAFTA crossroads. Maybe that's what's a little bit, it's not unique, but it certainly is our advantage. We have more rail lines in Kansas City than Chicago. So, you know, rail lines go north, south, east, and west. um, And we've had a lot of logistics innovation out in our region. We've also had innovation in GovTech. We've begun to get develop um, some chops in GovTech. Pay It was a terrific exit for us to the very nice IRR. Um, acquired by Insight Partners, a growth equity group, um, throughout all the other <laughs> local investors. But uh, and pay it only raised something like thirteen million dollars, and you know Insight gave them a hundred million dollars of new capital to uh, grow this business. So there's another thing I think that we do well in Kansas City, and also can be done well in other regions in the Midwest, and that is how do we build that capital efficiency so that the founders don't have to give away the whole ship? I really focused on founders keeping as much of their company as they can. And, you know, Triple Blind gave away a lot of the company with modest traction in order to attract some of those big players. The jury is still out. Pay it to GovTech, which is a payments um, system. They did the opposite. They chose not to bring in, you know, kind of grow it themselves and then keep a lot of the money side. So there's no one way to do it, but I'd say our our secret sauce is understanding what do we build. We build innovation for very basic businesses that are, are in our own backyard. And that's a very good point on capital efficiency that I don't think gets talked about enough with entrepreneurs and venture circles. You know, you hear about people raising these big funding rounds and, you know, my sense is a lot of entrepreneurs might get envious of that. And I say, it's not because they, they didn't raise the round because they need it. They raised it because they could. Right, because their business had some metrics or prospects that allowed them to raise money at good valuations to the founders, so they would take it. You know, it's a challenge for investors to put their money to work, right? Uh, more than ever, so they're they're looking for great deals. So if you understand that dynamic, as you said, you can 
raise money and do it in a way that um, where you don't have to suffer tremendous amount of dilution if you're smart about it. It's all about that capital efficiency, which which I think is, like I said, uh, not just not discussed often enough. Venture is the only place where in the press we are celebrating the dilution of founders. Like <laughs> right. what the heck? Why is that a positive? That is a great point. That's a great point. You know, right, right. I I call myself the Ted Lasso of venture capital because I'm super positive. I you know I like to be like let's cheerlead the little guy. Let's yeah. make sure that the, the founder is you know not so shoved aside by all this capital that's you know clamoring to get in. But it's an interesting balance too. It is. Um, it is a balance. Yeah, because the regions I, we we just like as you were mentioning before about the number of the, the amount of external capital that was coming. Coming into the region, so on one hand we celebrate it, right, and 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 people celebrate those those funding rounds, but we have to understand that's like that's that's sort of like crossing the first you know five miles in a marathon, you know while you're on pace. It doesn't it doesn't mean you're going to finish, you know. It's just it's a good start, perhaps, but there's a lot of things Great that have to go. Analogy. A lot of things have to go right, you know. So uh, save some of the champagne for later. <laughs> Well, you're exactly right. I mean, my fear for these entrepreneurs, right now, black and brown entrepreneurs are getting a lot of attention. Everyone wants to fund a black and brown founder. Um, and we do too. We're building a small black and brown founder fund to to help fund specifically mm-hmm. and, and surround certain founders with the resource they need, not just money, but all the other, you know, cohort, uh, you know, resources to, to help them succeed. And my concern is, is that when you get too much money, any kind of founder, you get too much money or up at the top of what you're able to raise, your your margin of error just shrinks. You've got to perform to perfection because those investors are expecting in the venture world anyway, those investors are expecting at least a 2x right growth of the valuation for their next dollar. So that means you've got to double your business in call it 18 to 24 months. And a lot of things go wrong. You know, the the pandemic, the product market fit, the you're selling something enterprise that just takes darn long to do. You're doing something innovative and new that people haven't quite gotten their hands around yet. There's all kinds of reasons, right, Tim? Why how businesses everything takes longer than they think. And so they end up having these sideways rounds and begging for capital and convertible note rounds and all the other things because they took so much money in the last round that they, you know, they, they had to really execute to perfection. So that's a, yeah, that's a great point. And I think the, um, you know, communities, traditional kind of venture communities, there's a lot of that institutional knowledge that entrepreneurs have, or they've heard it and they know it. And, and throughout places like Cincinnati or Kansas city or Indianapolis, that knowledge may not always be there because they're looking at, again, they're looking at the upside celebrating this, this funding round, but, the those expectations are are immense, and if you're if you're not aware of what's expected of you after that round and, and those returns, uh, you might be in for a rude awakening, right? And um, for example, I'm interested to see what you think of this. But one one mistake I see companies when they're about a million in revenue and you know trying to double or triple or five x growth, they have a business plan projections, but you know the hardest thing is hiring good talent. Right, and I don't know anybody who's hired great people on schedule, or, 
or every single person they hired was a perfect hire, right? That's like the hardest thing to do in business. And yet on a spreadsheet, it looks like it's just, you know, plug in the numbers and you need to give yourself some slack. That is so true. That's something that we work very hard on. We do two things. Um, we look for talent that we warehouse. We get talent at our door every day. And especially now during the the pandemic where we have talented former Kansas Indians who are moved back home, living with mom and dad or, yep. or high school friends or whatever, and do, they're still doing their coastal job. Um, we're in touch with a lot of them, like you're talent and you're having fun and back at back home. Like, why don't you just come back and, and, and stay? So we've been, we've been doing a lot of, um, you know, encouraging those kinds of folks. I just saw something in the paper today that said Kansas city is the third highest net. You get to keep money out of college of any city in in uh, the U.S., the highest was uh, out on the West Coast in the Bay Area, where their average was something like $72,000, but their net was like $56,000 because it's so expensive to live out there. So mm -hmm. that's really been, I think, also a bellwether idea for those of us in the Midwest, any city in the Midwest where you know, your costs as talented people could be much lower. And so um, just trying to capture some of those young people who are, you know, working for other places and can, can use that. Also that experience and talent, I love for the talent to go out of town for a while, go get experience in a big, huge market and come back and train us, help us. Exactly. Learn, exactly. Right? I, I call them the boomerangs, right? I think they're the best, you know, even LeBron James had to leave Cleveland and go to Miami before <laughs> he came back and won a championship, right? They learned something. And what they've learned is just invaluable. And uh, I've done the same thing with some of our interns that want me to hire them. I'm like, no, I'll help you get a job out on the coast or something. And someday you'll come back. I better not share the secrets, but the uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And then they appreciate, A, they appreciate where they grew up, right? But, but B, just like what you were doing, which I think is you know, so smart, which is you're thinking of the economics in terms of how to use it as a strategic advantage for building a company. Not just a not just a lifestyle reason, but how do you use it as a strategic advantage and and sort of weapon, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the competition? We've had some of our companies who want to go to the coast. In fact, uh, the Triple Blind Founders' first company, they had an experience where somebody said yes, and then they found out they were in Kansas City, and then they said no. You know, that was wow. six eight years ago. Today, those coastal investors are saying, "Stay right where you are." that our capital goes farther. That's another thing that all of us in the Midwest have, right? If you're going to invest two or five or $10 million into a business, don't you want that money to go farther? Um, uh, one of our young people that we're trying to get back here from the coast, who's a, a product manager, so, you know, so he knows how to, how to code and everything that we need here. Uh, he said their young company out in San Francisco just lost a brand new graduate from Yale who had never had any experience who was, um, they offered them $200,000 and they took the job at Google because Google offered them more. So that's the other thing that you've got on the coast is frankly, the environment is more transactional. Like, like how Absolutely. much can you pay right. me? What are you gonna do for me? I can go get another job. I hope we never get that way in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I hope it's much more relational. I wanna be here and build this cool thing with this amazing team and have a great life in, my town. Um, you know, that's what our secret sauce is in the Midwest, right? Yeah. And hopefully a company, whether it's triple blind or somebody else, they can make it. And that is celebrated and not the fact that Google or somebody set up shop in Kansas city, because 
uh, I've seen that like in Pittsburgh, right? You get Uber and Google and everybody's like, oh, this is great. We're getting high tech companies here. Well, they just hired away all the talent that the startups were going to hire, right? And, or they made them more expensive, which... Wow, Tim, I'd never thought about that, but that's yet another reason why it was great that we didn't get the HQ2 for <laughs> for Amazon. Oh, yeah. Because you're right, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons we didn't get it, because we didn't have enough talent at that time. Well, that's great, because what that did also for our community, this Casey Rising initiative, when we didn't get the HQ2, but we worked toward putting our bid in, it really helped us granularly think about what do we need to be in this community? And honestly, for all the incentives that they were going to give Google and all our uh, Amazon, if you invest that back in your own you can get a much higher return, right? From what you do and what I do, than bringing some big old out of towner who's got to mm. suck up all the talent. I'm so sure. glad Great you brought point. that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. I wrote an article around that time saying, making that same point. It's like, what? look how this created a catalyst for these cities. So all of a sudden, they took notice and they were going to give away billions of dollars to attract this company when you could invest a fraction of that in your existing entrepreneurs and infrastructure. And you'll have a lot more loyalty, right? And you'll see, I think, you know, many more results as a result of that. You know, right now, so in this whole CARES Act and all this money that the government is throwing around to municipalities to help them do things and with their budgets, just to give you one example, Kansas City, Missouri had a $70 million shortfall after 2020 with the pandemic and shutting up this, all these things, tax revenues down. For whatever reason, I don't know why the government is giving Kansas City, Missouri $196 million. What are we going to do with all that money? And if we don't use that as the catalyst, not just for shovel-ready projects, which are frankly infrastructure, those are come and go, you know, they're high paying for a very short period of time. How are we going to use some of that money to be catalytic to bring generational wealth change to those who maybe haven't been quite so um, um, privileged? So I think there's a lot of ways to think about what's going on. I don't love all the government money. It means there's going to be more taxes for all the rest of us. But if we use it wisely, this could actually be very catalytic in communities all over the Midwest um, to to think about how entrepreneur how that money could be used for growth. Absolutely, I've uh, kind of had this notion after reading about some of the stats and, and kind of the current m- many of the current crop of unicorns out there are companies that have only been in business seven years, right? So. When you're sitting around talking to people uh, about a ecosystem, and you, you talk, you know, you're usually talking about 20 years, 30 years, everybody, which it is good to have a long-term view. However, these unicorn companies are being created in seven years, so you know the uh, I start calling it the seven-year miracle, right? There, if there, <laughs> if you have two or three of these companies in your city that are sort of on the verge. Right, they've proven some things. They have some good, high-quality customers. They have the potential to be a market leader. What could you do to get behind them, to help amplify them for you know every big company in town to be a customer, what, whatever it is, because the odds of those companies transforming your community for generations is tremendous, and they're right there, they're right you know under your nose. I love the way you think about that. And we should also be thinking about how, what is, what is a unicorn? I would, I would, because we have one in town, uh, C2FO, 
Yeah, they've mm -hmm. raised $200 million, or obviously their valuation is over a billion dollars. But there are folks inside C2FO who'd say, Kansas City is not going to be that successful until we build more C2FO-type uh, sized businesses like you were, you know, unicorns. Mm -hmm. I, would I would go back and say, actually, I would love to know what the multiple of that last investor into C2FO is by the, before they get an exit versus the little old Casey Rice fund where we invest in something that it's a four and a half, five million dollar pre-money valuation. They raise a million or two and we're looking for 20x on our first check, right? That company that I'm just describing now could sell for a hundred or 200 million dollars and give a better return to the investors and by the way, could have more investors in Kansas City because now C2FO's investors are all outside of Kansas City, right? So when you get that liquidity event, is the money going to stay in Kansas City? Yeah, for the employees, it will. And, and they've been very generous employees. We're going to, C2FO will be a big win for Kansas City. But I would say we don't only need those kind of unicorns. I would take a hundred, two hundred, five hundred million dollar exit of a company that we invested less than $10 million all day long. Plus, it's a shorter time period. Those companies can sell in less than seven years and give a very big return to investors. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it's 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 likely to be a prog progression. Maybe it doesn't have to be. But if you look at, like, for example, Israel, Startup Nation, you know, they were, they, they, they are sort of a second Silicon Valley. But for years, they they had exits like that, right? They, they had companies that had private exits, M&A, and it, it took, I don't know, maybe two decades before they started having IPOs and companies that were standalone that stayed there. So good point. So it could be that it's just, it is part of the natural progression. It's not a trade-off necessarily. It's just as the community matures, the, the chance of some going, you know, going public ultimately uh, increases, but you're going to have a lot more of the hundred to $500 million exits kind of leading up to that point. Perhaps. So what cities have you seen who are, are farther along than what I've just described in Kansas City that you think we ought to be looking at and, and emulating? I mean, you look at the effect that Brad Feld and others have had in like in Boulder, Colorado, you know, or, you know, th that that's much yeah. smaller than most of the Midwest cities we're talking about, right? In terms of yep. yeah. um, overall population and the amount of companies that progress to Series B rounds. I, I think at the time when I looked at it, we were like, hey, you know, in a given year, we'd have maybe two Series B rounds in Cincinnati, and they would have eight. Yeah. You know, in <laughs> a much smaller city. So I think from a a, a size uh, standpoint, uh, very effective and efficient. The other is like, you know, Provo, Utah, you know, just a ton of data companies and, you know, lots of success. And then people all learn from each other. Right. And that's the other thing right. I think happens is you don't want to have all these um, isolated success stories, right. When you can build more com community, but more specifically, I think it's the shared learning. Right? Well, that and the employees in those companies in Provo, Utah, finally, they like the light bulb goes on for them. Oh, well, I've got an idea I can develop. And now I see how that works. And I can do right? it. And I'm confident now it's not yeah. somebody I read about on the cover of Fast Company or Inc. It's I know that person. I know the neighborhood when they lived. And now I'm inspired. Hey, I can, why can't I do that? Bingo. Uh, my, my sense is at, at the heart, you are an entrepreneur. Right, you, you've navigated I call myself yourself a capital a, entrepreneur. Yeah, capital entrepreneur. 
So where did that come from? There, there's uh, what role did your parents and your growing up have on in your? My mom was a hand wringer over all the dollars. I remember times when I wasn't going to, I literally wasn't going to get a birthday present because my parents had to meet payroll. My dad, oh, he was the bon vivant, risk takery guy, great skier, very uh, artistic, and he had a business and he figured it out. He never grew it into a huge, he died at a suddenly at age 60. So it wasn't like he grew it into something was gargantuan, but I lived that as a kid. I lived that story of, of scarcity and by your own wits and cunning and abilities, you know, you built something that was real. And I just happened to identify more with my dad, I guess, than my mom, the hand wringer. <laughs> but, you know, it's good to have a hand wringer in those entrepreneurial because somebody's got to watch the ship of, uh, you know, make sure that it's all going to be there for the kids. Yeah, and all definitely. That. Yeah. Yeah. Kids. No, it, it definitely <laughs> takes both. I always say I, I couldn't have been an entrepreneur if it weren't for my wife who, was the hand ringer, the saver. And, you know, she made, she made sure we didn't go under, you know? And so, well, I did see you reference a quote from your mom, no pity parties, get out there and do it. Which I, I, she she was a battle ax. Oh yeah. My mom had (laughs) no, uh, yeah, we all developed that where you just go do it. You know, the whole victimhood today of this group feels victimized and that group feels victimized. You know, I was in the financial services when there was maybe 12 or 15% women. Mm-hmm. It never even occurred to me there were only 12 or 15% women. I just like, oh, this looks like interesting. And I just went and did it, right? So I think that's mindset I hoped that have instilled in my own children, uh, want to instill in my grandchildren and anybody else who'll listen to me about just go out and do it. Uh, that's great, great wisdom. And, and and there's no guarantee. We we know that building a company, being an entrepreneur is one of the hardest things you can do, right? You're, you can do everything right and still it doesn't work. And at the end of the day, you know, life's not fair. No matter what somebody tells you, nobody owes you anything. Right. And if you're going to make it, you have to make it, period. No excuses, whether it's raining or snowing or earthquake or COVID, whatever happens, you've got to figure it out. Right. And, um, and actually, when you overcome those challenges, it actually strengthens you and makes you better because you say, hey, you know what? I got through it last time. I, I'm going to get through this one. You know, it's, I believe that's why immigrants and people who came from nothing are such good entrepreneurs because they don't have the luxury of not trying. They don't have the luxury mm-hmm. of, well, I'll just wait until next year when, you know, mom and dad, uh, you know, give me another check. And how few entrepreneurs you see from families of wealth. So it's something that parents, uh, I would say the entrepreneurs who are listening as parents, your kids are going to perhaps struggle less than you did. Like, how can you find ways for your kids to have that that gene of go out and figure it out and and not help them at every step and make them figure it out? It's a it's a parental responsibility that not a lot of parents think about, but it's one that I uh, I think about a lot. That is terrific. I hope a lot of entrepreneurs are listening. A lot of wisdom from you today, Darcy. Thank you so much for being on Fast Frontiers. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Such a pleasure, Tim. What you're doing is amazing, and I'm just grateful to be a little part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting platform. 
Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Mitch Pork, Vice President of Strategy and Analytics at BlockFi. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is Casted.